This is a recording made at the chapel of the opened book under the covering title The Theroma and the subdivision The Epistle to the Colossians. The present series is entitled Seven Steps to Glory and this evening we are considering the fourth of these steps quickened with Christ. Those of you who are listening to this recording may care to join us in the reading of the scriptures and if so Will you switch off for a little while we read together Psalm 119, verses 25 to 56. There's no need for me to explain why I chose these verses because of the recurrence of that word quicken. Here we have the psalm of the scriptures, the psalm of the word. Not every verse, but almost every verse speaks of the word of God in one of its many titles. And running through this psalm, in other verses besides those we've read, we have this element of quickening. We'll come back to that a little bit later. You will remember that we are considering the bearing upon (coughs) our calling, our position, our hope, of the uh, seven references that we have of identifying the believer with Christ. The sacrifice of Christ, as we've already remarked and seen, has more aspects than one. He died for the ungodly, while they were yet sinners. They didn't even repent and have faith. He died for them quite independently of that. The repentance and faith came afterwards. And yet at the same time, when he died, we are distinctly told that God reckoned that we died with him. And so we started at the bottom rung of this ladder, the bottom rung that he reached on our account, the death of the cross, we started with being crucified with Christ. And then we've looked at the statements of scripture that those who were associated with him are written to have died with him. And last time, we came to the final note, buried with him. Well now there are three others that are future. Raised, or seated, and manifested. Raised and seated are going to be anticipated now, but resurrection in the full sense is future, and to be seated at the right hand of God is future, it's only potentially now, and to be manifested in glory is future. But there's a link between the two. And I dare say you've, you've heard yourself, and you know that others very often forget to mention this link. Any amount of time you will say, and I will say, and others will say, when we're going over this, speaking to somebody, <coughs> we have been crucified with Christ, we've died with him, we're buried with him, and they say, and we're raised with him, and seated with him. See, they leap over. So we're not going to leap over this this evening. We're going to face this fact, that even now, not waiting for the future, but now, we're quickened with him. The word quickening is a word which is used with regard to this life, with regard to childbirth, And quickening takes place long before birth. Quickening takes place without any very obvious evidences. 
not manifest. When a child's born, well, anybody knows it. The quickening is a private affair. Well, that's where we are, friends. We are not yet born. You know, when the passage is quoted in, from John, you must be born again. Possibility, you must be begotten again. And Peter speaks about being begotten by the word of God. The begetting. Well, how do we know? The begetting is going to be effectual by the quickening and then the ultimate birth. There are processes in it. And here we've got something which is operative now. Something that we mustn't hand over to the future. We're quickened now. That's the thing I think we want to hang on to. And the all-covering verse for us, oh, let us never minimise it or put it aside. It, it says in the epistle to the Colossians that your life is hid with Christ in God. It doesn't say, only say that a person when he's dead and you're conducting his funeral service and say to the mourning friends, oh well, our beloved brother has departed this life but now his life is hid with Christ in God. Paul's not preaching a funeral service. He's telling those who are listening to him that at that moment their life is hid with Christ in God. Now let's see how far this is true and in harmony with the teaching of Scripture. The first thing to notice is that in Ephesians 2, this quickening is associated with, in verse 5 and in verse 1, in verse 1 of course it's there in anticipation. The words are in the original. And you who were, and then he picks it up again, verse 5, even when we were, I drew your attention when we were dealing with this aspect, that this is in the present tense and not in the past. The translators forced themselves, they couldn't help themselves, when they translated it dead in sins there to make it in the past, because it would be perfectly untrue and foolish to say that you, now at this present moment, are dead in sins. You couldn't say that of a believer. And as there's no word in, and there's a present tense there, well, we'll have to do without the authorised version for a moment and come back to what the scripture says, that you being it at this moment, now, dead to sin. And exactly the same construction is found in 1 Peter 3. He bare our sins in his own body on the tree that you being dead to sin. You couldn't say he bore our sins in his own body on the tree and therefore as a consequence you are dead in sin. Now, being dead to sins, what's going to happen to you? Well, you're one day going to have a, a, a immortality. You're going to enter into eternal life in its fullest sense. But you're starting. Let me take you one verse that's often quoted in Gospel meetings. He that heareth my word and believe it on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Is that true or not? In what way have we passed from death into life? We're still mortal. We're still here. There's no evident change when a person's a believer, so far as his body is concerned. But the scripture says it started within. Don't you know the passage which says, 
that the outward man is perishing. But at the self-same moment, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Well, what's that mean? Doesn't it mean if it's renewed, the inward man, isn't that life working? So we've got to remember that although we've got a long way yet before we get to glory, and a long way before we touch the question of personal immortality, don't let's go to the other swing of the pendulum. You see what has happened? The traditional teaching of so many is that the moment a person dies, he goes straight away to glory. Or if he doesn't go to glory, he goes to paradise. Or he goes somewhere where he's consciously enjoying the presence of the Lord. Well then some of us found that we couldn't make that fit scripture. We realised that death couldn't be explained like that. And so we've gone to the other extreme and I've heard people say that a believer who's dead is just as same as a beast that's perishing. That's the end, you see. Well why, why give away this precious statement that although your body is still going down because it must ultimately resolve into its elements and return to the dust from which it came. Why be little the other statement that although the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed from day to day? Is that not life beginning to work? That's the idea of quickly. Shall we now turn to one or two scriptures to help us see some of these teachers? Romans, the fourth chapter. Of course, the word quickening is actually used of future resurrection in John's Gospel. The Son quickeneth whom he will, and speaks about those who will be raised from the dead. So quickening is an anticipation now, at this present moment, of a future literal life from the dead. But Romans, the fourth chapter, brings before us the case and example of Abraham. Verse 17. I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom we believed. Now God's got a, a peculiar title here. In the Old Testament, his name is Jehovah. And that was the one before Abraham, before whom Abraham stood. But when the apostle is writing, he gives him this title. Even God, who quickeneth the dead. Quickeneth the dead. Well, he was going to give to Abraham, a man who so far as parenthood was concerned was as good as dead, as the scripture says, he was going to give him a son. So it wasn't resurrection in the ultimate full sense in the word that was implied, it was that he was going to quicken that man. And he quickened it to such an extent that although Abraham was as good as dead so far as having a child was concerned, ten years afterwards he became the father of Ishmael, a man who ought never to be born at all. So it was a genuine quickening. So it says, he quick and he calleth those things which are not as though they were. This is God can do this. So we have this emphasis here. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of any nation. That's the point. This quickening was to do with the promise. He led Abraham out to see the stars of the sky and he said, so shall thy seed be. That was a wonderful thing to say to a man who knew that both he and his wife had passed the age to expect to have a child. He said, so shall thy seed be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed it. 
And then after ten years waiting, the man, the marvel is that he waited so long. Our faith wouldn't have lasted for ten years. He began to think we'd made a mistake. And Ishmael was the consequence. But God meant what he said. And Isaac was born. And so we have, he said, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God, through unbelief that was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Hebrews 11 says, his, he was as good as dead. Uh, Romans says that he was dead. Dead so far as parentage was concerned, and to all intents and purposes, as good as dead with regard to these things. Well now, if that's the case, we have an example of life working here, now, not in the future. Well, you might say that was only ordinary life, yes, but it's brought before us as an example that God is the God that quickeneth the dead. Not merely he raises them in the yet future. Now he quickened Abraham in his present life. Now you'll find these words are carried over into doctrine in chapter 8. Chapter 8. Verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So we emphasize, for all we are worth, that the wages of sin is death. And then we soft-pedal the other statement, that the spirit is life. But the spirit is life. That's not a future statement, that's now. The body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Your mortal bodies will be quickened. Your mortal bodies will not be raised from the dead. For the Apostle canvases that problem and says, he will give it a body if it pleased him. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. You'll have no mortal body then to deal with. It'll be a body, like unto his body of glory. But the mortal body now can be quickened. Let's look at another passage. Two uh, uh, Galatians 2.20 We'll come back to 2 Corinthians in a moment. Galatians 2.20 He's speaking about his relationship to the law and after arguing with Peter about the question of justification he speaks for himself. So far as I am concerned, he said in verse 19, I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. You'll practically never find the apostle saying that he's dead in this sense without adding but alive unto God. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed as a thing but alive unto God, says Romans 6. See? Live. Always emphasizing there's the other side too. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Then he goes on to expand and explain. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
not some future expectation in the glory, but now at this present moment, I am as good as dead, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, so he said it. I haven't got to say it, I've only got to draw your attention, that it's the life I now live in the flesh, that's this moment, with all its weaknesses, and with all its encumbrances, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith. Now this is an expression that needs to be handled with care. There's a group of them, if you take them all together, and it doesn't mean my faith in Christ. This means the faithfulness of Christ. That perhaps would have to be taken separately presently, some other time. But I live now by the faith of, not my faith in, but the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That now, the life I now live in the flesh. So I can lift out from the scriptures those words, now live. I can lift out from the scriptures those words, in the flesh. I can lift out from Romans 8, your mortal body. It's now, friends. You say, well, you are emphasising this. Yes, because it's been rather relegated to a back place. And it ought to be brought prominently forward. So we now look back again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse. Well, verse 7, I think, will give us the introduction. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And the earthen vessel, of course, was a symbol and picture of the human body of the apostle and his fellow workers. Two of us all. We are all earthen vessels. Some of us are just ordinary pottery. Others will be royal crown derby. Uh, but whether we are galley pots or whether we are porcelain, we are earthen vessels. And there's one thing common to all earthen vessels. They're very frail. They're very, very easily shattered. And so he said, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. Why, Paul? He says, the life I now live in the flesh, it's Christ living in me. That's why. All right, let him explain this. Always bearing about in our, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now are we to stop there? Are we to emphasize the death side and not emphasize equally the life side? If we take one, must not we take the other? If we are in any measure conscious of the dying of the Lord Jesus in association with Him, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. In our body. That's not future, that's now. For we which live, now he's talking about his ordinary life, are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. He said, yeah, I die, I die daily, in another context. That the life also of Jesus, here it comes, might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. You can't get away from it, can you? In this very realm of mortality, 
in this very sphere of the flesh, the life of the risen Christ can work and be manifested. So then death worketh in us. He's a little bit sarcastic, you'll find sometimes, when he's writing to the Corinthians particularly. He says, Oh, you have reigned. Oh, yes. He said, I would to God you did reign. I'd be with you. But he said, that's a, that's a supposition that you've got to unlearn. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Now we have in the same spirit of faith the causing as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. And of course that must be always and ever our attitude. Well now shall we look at one or two other passages. I've already quoted but I think I'd like you to see the context of John, the fifth chapter. I've quoted the verse, verse 24. But I think we'll go back into John 5. In the 17th verse, our Saviour made this remark, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought in the war to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They charged him with that. And now he rebuts their charge, and this is how he does it. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, and it's a very strange way of rebutting the charge at first, if you notice. They said he made himself equal with God. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Well, you say, now that shows you that you were wrong. You're not equal with God. But if you say the Son can do nothing of himself, you cannot be equal with God. But you see, we haven't let the Son of God speak, have we? We've interrupted it. Let's go back again. The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. Have you ever seen what the Father does, friends? Have you? He said, I do. But he added to that. For what thing soever he doeth, notice, what thing soever the Father does, these also doeth the Son likewise. Have you ever heard any believer say that? That he saw what the Father did, and he had perfect ability to do likewise, do exactly the same. You see, at one stroke, he's demolished their antagonism. They said, you make yourself equal with God. He said, I can do nothing of myself. That's my subservient position as the sent one. But the moment he said that, that he said, you're making a mistake when you stop there. I see the Father. I see his work. I do likewise. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Now I'll give you the first instance, he said. I'll give you the first instance. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son of Man quickeneth whom he will. And I expect some of you will come back at me and say, well, that shows its future resurrection. You see? As the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. But not so fast, friends. Verse 24, at the end, but he's passed from death unto life, that now, when you believe. Verily, verily, I say to you, the hour is coming. Look a little bit further down. 
Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, into which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Now I want you to come back to verse 25. The hour is coming, and now is. That's slipped in, you see. The hour is coming, and now is. When one thing happens, the hour is coming, and it's future, when something else happens. Now what are the two? The hour is coming, and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. The hour is coming in which all that are in their graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth and live. So now is, is the response of the believer to the gospel. He passes from death unto life now. And in future, he will be raised from the dead then. So you see, you've got the two. The quickening is now as well as in the future. We are anticipating that glorious day. Now shall we come again to that well-known passage, but never too well-known, Colossians chapter 3, and follow the Apostle's argument once more. He says, you remember, in verse 20 of chapter 2, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ, why as though living? in the world. So there, one aspect of life ceases. But another aspect of life begins. If he then be risen with Christ, chapter 3, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, is better translated, for ye died. That's done. That's the thing that's passed. You die. Not you will die sometime in the future, but you die. And your life is hid with Christ in God. So to the believer who is reckoned to have died with Christ, it's now true at this present moment that his life is hid with Christ in God. I don't know any bank or any safe deposit that can come up to that view. Is there a more safe hiding place in the whole universe of God than to be hidden with Christ in God? And what you and I are doing just now, we're drawing on the deposit that's been made for us in the bank of faith. We are living in this life just a little, small, unpretentious, as it were, anticipation of life that is yet to be. The Epistle to Romans says, as a consequence of our belief and our calling, we rise to walk in newness of life and serve in newness of spirit. We put on the new man which has been created. We put it on now. In the glorious future, we're going to put on immortality. We're not going to pretend we're immortal yet. Oh no. But we've got the beginnings of it. The quickening is here. The life which is life indeed in all its glorious fullness is future. And so he said, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life? If you ask me what is life? I say if you're talking about the life that I now have because I've become a believer and belong to Christ, Christ is my life. Christ is my life. 
highlights I did by the faith of the Son of God. And so it says it in different ways. When Christ who is our life shall appear or be made manifest, then shall he also appear with him in glory. Well now one or two other aspects. The uh, Epistle to the Corinthians chapter 15 says this at the close of that great chapter devoted as it is so much to all the problems associated with resurrection. It says in verse 55 O death where is thy sting? O death where is thy sting? O grave where is thy victory? In the margin it says hell. I do remember or what was it? 1927 I think. I went to Canada. And on one occasion, I had a drawing room meeting arranged for me for a great number of Christian ministers. And I said to them, now although we are dealing with other things, I have a feeling that in the back of your mind is a little question going on, ah yes, but what does this man believe about hell? So I turned the blackboard and I showed that I worked out a graph all sorts of words like fire and brimstone and torment and whatnot, and put across the top and then 14 epistles put down the other side. I said, I've done a lot of work for nothing but I've only put one reference in the whole board. Paul speaks about hell once in the whole of his 14 epistles and in all his addresses in the Acts of the Apostles once. And then you may say to me, ah, but if you turn to that passage and see the way he's piled it on. Well, I say, we turn to it. Here it is. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? So Paul never speaks about the orthodox hell even once in the whole of his ministry. But that's a little bit beside the point. The sting of death is sin. Now, the sting is fortified by the fact that the law condemns. And the breaker of law is amenable to death. (coughs) But he says, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Well, he says, you see, if sin has been forgiven, if sin has been removed, the sting has taken. He says in this earlier verses, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There must be a change. It doesn't matter who you are and what your condition, saved or lost. You must be changed if ever there's going to enter into the kingdom of God. So he said, do look upon the teaching of scripture with a certain amount of circumspection. When an unsaved person dies, the sting of death, alas, has not been removed. And the wages of sin is death. But when a believer dies, the scripture says, more than once, it says it in this very 1 Corinthians 15, those that have fallen asleep in Christ, those that fall asleep 
And as we said earlier, but we must say it again in this context, again, that having looked at every reference in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, every single reference to the word falling asleep when it refers to death, there isn't one passage which refers to an unbeliever. To fall asleep is exclusively used of a believer. Now, to anticipate an objection, which I'm glad might be made, somebody says, what about those evil kings of the Old Testament who slept with their fathers? Well, look at the word slept, if you'd like to look it up, and you find it simply means to be lying down, as everyone is when they're buried. Nothing to do with the word sleep at all. Nothing. So, the sting of death has been removed, and you fall asleep in Christ. Your life, you see. Christ is your life. And whether you're conscious or whether you're unconscious, you're living. Some of us don't sleep so well as we used to. But when I was quite a youngster, I don't know what it would take to wake me up. I remember once the ceiling fell down in the room and people, dad and mum were up there fussing about, but I was asleep until they woke me. Now, of course, it's the other way. But you see, if Christ is my life, I can be as unconscious as I was then as a child, dead to the world, but not dead. Oh, no. Not in that sense. Christ was my life. But this sleep of death is a bit longer. It has more attached to it. And the body returns to the dust as it was. The spirit returns to God who gave it. Don't ask me all these hows and whys because even the apostle ever turned around in the grids and say, Thou fool. You're asking questions you can't even answer in this life. You sow a seed. You don't know how. That seed that dies produces a head of exactly the same quality, same type, but it does. Just the same in the resurrection, God gives it a body as it has pleased him. But he takes that life and he deposits it with Christ. And when Christ appears, our life appears, and we live again, consciously, this time in a body of glory. You might notice too how this is covered, one aspect of it is covered by the sacrifice of Christ as mentioned in Hebrews 2. Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It is a bondage, isn't it? To have no hope beyond the grave. It is a bondage to be under the fear of death. I was speaking today to someone who spoke about his wife's father. He said when he was 91, when this old man was 91, he went to the tailors and said he wanted a suit and he wanted it a bit better than it had been done before. He wanted something to last. <laughs> you know, that man was exhibiting at least in his mentality the idea 
that he hadn't got the fear of death haunting him because he happened to be 91. Now, whether it was because he was without sense and feeling, I don't know. But you see, there's a little moral there. You and I can go on without plans and arrangements, knowing that we'll have to finish our course sometime or another, but we're not even actually worrying about it. It's already in the hands of God. And when that moment comes, well, it'll be a longer sleep than usual. And when the resurrection takes place, it'll be a waking or to a different world from the one in which we wake up tomorrow morning. That's all. But life has started. The quickening has begun with him. And it will go right on to that day which is yet to be. So we have here, the fear of death is touched. And then you may remember that 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 2, 6, touches upon this. One Timothy chapter two six, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom. Now it's very fine and it's very good to know that there are those who still preach the ransom that Christ made. They do preach a redeemer, but you know I believe it wouldn't be unfair to say that where you might attend nine or so we say ten gospel services where the ransom for sin is preached. You might have to go to many gospel services before you heard this word preached. Listen, I'm quoting from a minor prophet. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Any amount of times a preacher preaches redemption from sin. But supposing the other was never provided, friends, then it would mean the difference between an unsaved man and a saved one was that the saved man lived his little life knowing that he was forgiven and the unsaved man lived his little life not knowing it and then they both end because God forgot to redeem them from the power of the grave. But he didn't. The ransom includes both the sin and the death. So, we have this redemption covering both the present life and the power of the grave and redemption from death. Of course, that must look forward ultimately to the resurrection. There's a, I try to think of an analogy. Something made me, I don't know what, consider a little electric gadget or minutes coils of wire and all sorts of bits now if you didn't know a word about it you gave it to somebody you'd look at it you say mm, I don't know what to make of it but what makes that thing work is an invisible force isn't it called electricity now I'm venturing as far as I understand electricity its great power is that that current is trying to get home you have to have an earth, don't you? Because if there's no earth, it might not go through. But if it can get back to earth, it will. And that's its great power. Friends, that's what I see in myself and you. We've got now within us something which is wanting to get home. 
And because it wants to get home, it's directing our attention to things above, it's setting our, thing, our affections there, it's making us have a happy hope and a blessed prospect beyond. It's a homing spirit wanting to get back and complete itself. My knowledge of electricity is exceedingly limited. But I have a feeling that that little tiny bit is true. That it's pressing all the time to get... That's why you see on these great um, masts quite a number of very wonderfully made porcelain interceptors with long spaces in between. Because that current there is so strong that if it weren't all that much, it would leap through and go to the earth at once and lose a lot. Well, we've got now the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, working within us, quickening in us, and taking us along that journey home. Well now, as my time is almost up, I refer back again to the Psalm 119. I won't refer to all the verses, but there are five of them altogether, where we have this quickening, which is associated with the Word of God. And that says to you and to me, the life we now live, the Christian life we now live, needs some sustenance. I have a feeling that when we reach glory, we shall be so associated with the living risen Christ that sustenance will not come into it. I hope we're not like one lady that I spoke to when we were having dinner once, and she said she was looking forward to glory when she'd have something better to eat. I said, do you expect to have something to eat at all up there? Oh, yes, she said. Well, I said, I think you've got another thought coming. There's more things to be done with eating than you. Oh, she said, yes, I hadn't thought of that. I said, yes, you think twice. No, no, we're going to be united to the risen Christ and has he, has he have been given life in himself? Now, he had it in himself before he laid aside his glory. So he's been given life in himself for our sakes. And we shall live because he lives. But now at this present moment, we have to depend a lot, don't we? And one of the ways in which God ministers to us is quicken through thy word. Quicken through thy word. I hope that's one of the results of a Bible study like this, faith. That we come here because we have a consciousness that we have a spiritual life that cannot be quickened and cannot be sustained and cannot be fed by the bread that perishes or anything that man supplies. Here is something that God has given. If we neglect it, we shall be weak. And if we go to it, we shall be strong. And so, may the Lord give us grace to continue this witness to his glory. Now, if I've carried on a little bit alarming this evening, in stressing this, it's only because I felt there's been a gap in the way in which it has been ministered by some. And largely because we're afraid that if we don't go to the full swing of the pendulum, the other side, the other people won't think we're quite orthodox. Well, who cares about that as long as we've got the truth of God? Very often the middle road is far more preferable than on one curve or the other. And nearly every creed that's been fashioned in conflict overstates, like the Athanasian Creed and all the others. They overstate it because they want to win the victory. Well, we want the truth. And the truth is that when a person is dead, he's dead. But that doesn't mean to say his life, which is Christ, has become extinct. It's reserved. It's kept. And that, one day, will be manifested in all its glory, only, of course, when Christ is manifested too.